Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Itam Alman, and I have the great pleasure to be speaking today with Stefan Neff on his new book, Justice Among Nations, which just, which just came out with Harvard University Press. Justice Among Nations is a book of breathtaking scope, telling the story of the development of international law from ancient times to the present, moving across many different cultures and parts of the world. I take, I take it this intellectual history of international law seeks to be comprehensive, at least as much as that is possible, and it moves among names that any student of international law will recognize, but also surveys sources that, at least for me, were thus far completely obscure. Neff's prose is both accessible and elegant, and this book will surely become an enormously important resource for scholars and students interested in the field. I warmly recommend this book and would like to thank Professor Neff for being with us here today. Uh, Professor Neff, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, wonderful. Thanks for uh, being here. Well, thank you for having me. (laughs) Uh, Could you please uh, start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, just a bit about myself. I am an American national, though I have been living here in Britain since the late 1970s, and I've been teaching here at the University of Edinburgh since 1983 in international law. Mm Mm-hmm. And, but all of my learning of international law was done in the United States, and all of my teaching has been done in Britain, rather oddly. So I'm a kind of bifurcated person. And by training, are you a historian or a lawyer or both? Uh, a lawyer and not a historian. No, as a historian, I am an amateur. <laughs> not, I don't think uh, that is uh, the case, really. But uh, uh, So uh, can you tell us just a little bit about your training? Yes, I was trained as a, I have an undergraduate degree from Harvard College in sociology, and then did my legal training at the University of Virginia. And I obtained not just a JD degree there, but also an LLM and an SJD. Okay, wonderful. And and I've qualified as a solicitor in Britain as uh, as well since then. Okay, and what led you to write this book? Well, it has been uh, basically an ambition of mine throughout my career. I was thinking that uh, I have always had an attraction to macro history, as one might call it, and uh, it had always been in my mind from the very beginning that I would like to write a great history of the subject, since the ones that existed were unsatisfactory in in many and varying degrees. And I wanted to write something that had a real storyline to it, something that would be accessible to general readers and not just technical analysis for lawyers. Well, I think it's certainly a success in that respect. What are the other sources that you were just uh, not so satisfied with, if I may ask? Well, other books have tended to be written for lawyers, particularly, and so they were too technical in character or were not so comprehensive in the scope of coverage. They would perhaps begin in, say, the 18th century or the 17th century, or so there was the uh, a belief amongst many people that international law was invented in the 17th century, which is very far from true. 
So others didn't have the kind of scope that I had in mind and didn't have the appeal to, to a lay readership that I was seeking. Okay, so that leads me kind of naturally to the uh, first question that I wanted to ask you, which is when did international law begin? Well, that depends heavily on what your definition of international law is. If by international law you mean various pragmatic devices for regularizing or stabilizing relations between states, then it begins just about as uh, goes about as far back as recorded history itself, uh, particularly in three areas: treaty making, diplomatic relations, and conduct of war. Uh, nearly as far back as we have uh, historical records. However, if you insist that international law must be based on have some kind of doctrinal basis, as it were, well, that that came only much later. That came or at the very earliest, I would would say, in the Middle Ages when natural law doctrines were being uh, set out in, in some detail. Mm-hmm. And in terms of uh, a, a range of highly specific and comprehensive rules, something like the 17th or really the 18th century w- would be the beginning. Okay. And in, I was curious while reading this book, um, when you kind of did research to prepare for it, what uh, counts as a textual source uh, in international law when you try to go back to the very beginning? Well, going back to the very beginning, it was a, a matter of chasing down any kind of references to international law which were in other kinds of writings because you don't have a textbook on international law as such uh, that is a book which treats that entirely until the Islamic period, actually the uh, 7th to 8th centuries AD. Before that, there would be smatterings here and there in in writings amongst classical Chinese writers, classical Greek writers, and the Romans wrote a great deal about law, of course, but hardly anything about international law per se. So it was a matter of constant rummaging through all of these other sources. So it was necessary to have a sort of overall view of Chinese and Greek and Roman history in order to know where you could most fruitfully go rummaging, as it were. Hmm. What a what a task. Um, and I wanted to ask you also, as a introduction kind of question, uh, about the title of the book. I know the title is Justice Among Nations, as I said, and it seems to be there seems to be a particular decision here in terms of, I guess, legal theory. Uh, on the one hand. You have the word. Uh, you, you have the statement that is that it is among nations, and not perhaps among individuals, and not perhaps among states. I, I can think of other options as well. And also, you have the decision of putting the word justice rather than putting the word uh, law. I was wondering if you can say something about those those decisions with your title. Well, I didn't agonize too much on either of those grounds. I could just as well have put states instead of nations. I think except states is perhaps a more modern-sounding term than nations, and I would like something that gives a, a flavor of, uh, of a very wide range of history. So perhaps I should could have mentioned empires as well. It's very hard to see what what specific word to use. But the old-fashioned expression for international law was the law of nations. So using something that had a, a bit of an archaic turn to it uh, so that people wouldn't think it was just uh, an up-to-date point. And saying justice instead of law is the idea that this is an idea of justice which has grown through time which is instantiated into law, 
But with law, that carries the connotation that it was promulgated by some kind of legislature or monarch or something. And of course, international law wasn't that way. It didn't come about like that. Uh, international law grew as a sense, uh, a sense of justice in, in many ways from the bottom up. And I like to characterize international law, by the way. I, and I say this in the first lecture in all my courses that international law is, in my view, the scientific study of anarchy. <laughs> it is the study of how you can have law without a lawgiver. Some people would say that that must be impossible, but it isn't. Could, could, could you explain that? What is a, the scientific study of anarchy? That's really interesting. Well, it's the idea that there is no world government or world sovereign who will hand down law to the people. I also always tell my students that my favorite film is The Ten Commandments, because that's a wonderful picture of Moses up there on the mountain, and he receives the commands from God and, and gives them to the people. Well, international law did not come about that way. International law was made by the states of the world themselves in a very gradual basis and on a piecemeal basis from the ground up uh, and grew over the course of time. And people began to make sense out of it in a more systematic way, sort of after the fact, as it were, mm -hmm. as it was going on. Mm -hmm. And so that this was law made by the people themselves spontaneously. Yeah, yeah. This is what the anarchist thinkers had said that human social relations should be. They should not be rules imposed by governments. They should be the natural sociability of human beings spontaneously showing through, uncoerced and unconstrained. Okay, that, that idea of nature is something I really, of course, uh, would like to come back to and uh, develop a little bit. Uh, but before that, something related to an issue, another issue that you already kind of alluded to, and that is um, a question that a lot of international law lawyers often, or people that call themselves international lawyers, whatever that may mean, often ask, ask themselves and discuss, uh, sometimes even a little bit tediously perhaps, and it is the question of, is what we're doing law at all? Is it, Are we part of a club, so to speak? And... Uh, your book kind of shows that this question in itself has a, a history and uh, certain ways of asking it were kind of um, promulgated or, or disseminated across history in, in, in various uh, periods. What can we learn from the ways in which people were discussing this, this kind of existential crisis of a question? Well, you can learn quite a bit about the presuppositions and mentalities of people doing the asking uh, of such questions. And there is, of course, a school of thought that international law cannot be law, because some people hold the view that law, by definition, must be something which is promulgated by a sovereign. And, of course, if that is your belief, then international law does not qualify. Uh, that, that is correct. You, uh, international law, when you think about it, forces you to have a more a broader view uh, of law than that than, than that narrow one of just uh, commands from a sovereign, which is the positivist view of law. And uh, international law is a, a, a law in w which is radically decentralized. The enforcement of the law, as well as the making of the law, is diffused among the subjects. And that's something that is uh, very difficult for people to grasp because that's not an intuitive way of looking at law for ordinary people. 
because we think of law as being something that the Congress makes and orders us to do. Uh huh. And are there any particular examples uh, that you found illuminating or surprising in terms of this particular discussion about uh, is international law law at all uh, in history that might be worthwhile kind of just uh, highlighting? Well, I think that the this came to uh, fruition most notably in the 19th century as positivism was becoming the dominant philosophy. And international lawyers did become worried about this. There hadn't been any real doubt in previous centuries when uh, natural law views prevailed that international law, of course, fell under that easily enough. But it was in the 19th century that these doubts set in and international lawyers began emphasizing uh, that law is made by the customary processes. And so lawyers at that, international lawyers at that point began paying a great deal more attention to the method of lawmaking than they had before and expounding on just exactly what do we mean by a rule of customary law, in what ways do treaties become binding. And So this and, is the, peri- the, the period of uh, kind of the high period of positivism, as you uh, discuss in the book. Am I correct? Yes, that's right, in the 19th century, basically. And I think it's most obvious in the enforcement area, the way that enforcement was done as a me- measure of self-help by the states themselves. Yeah. That they didn't rely, they didn't have any United Nations Security Council to rely on, even in theory, let alone in practice. And so uh, international law is a do-it-yourself kind of law, as I describe it to my students. Right. But do-it-yourself doesn't uh, yet mean that it is a thing that happens naturally. Indeed, there is there may be thought of thought of as kind of uh, tension between this idea of doing something yourself and it happening naturally. And a moment ago, when you discussed that, it seemed like there is a certain slippage there or or kind of transformation from the from the idea of kind of voluntarism and uh, self-assertion to the idea of a kind of nature or spontaneous process. Um, Could you say something a a little bit about that? Yes, that's right. One of the things that was emphasized strongly in the 19th century was that for something to be law in the true and proper sense of the word, there must be an enforcement mechanism. In other words, law cannot be simply a list of rules that you should do. Uh, It can't just be a rule book. There has to be a policeman or courts or or something behind it. And in previous centuries, that hadn't been supposed, that hadn't been thought to be the case. Uh, Natural law, for example, is practically by definition a body of law for which there is no enforcement mechanism. There is no procedural mechanism behind it. Uh, it is a set of rules in the abstract, as it were, which states will follow with luck, or it is hoped that states would follow. Uh, but it was in the 19th century that people became ever more insistent that that was inadequate. You need to have an enforcement mechanism of some kind, or or we're not going to call it law. And international lawyers were sensitive to that, and that's why reprisals came to be uh, came to be seen as being very important for international law in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the age of gunboat diplomacy for more reasons than one, shall we say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the interesting traditions that you highlight in the book is a kind of dualist tradition, 
That is to say that uh, some international lawyers, uh, I think chiefly probably Groschitz, as you explained, uh, do not think these two positions are mutually exclusive. And that is something that I found kind of interesting, and uh, I didn't have it phrased in this particular way in my mind before reading the book. Could you say something about this dualist tradition? Is there indeed a dualist tradition that is kind of important in the history of international law? Yes, and it was important for a number of centuries, and there are many traces of it even to the present day. By dualist position is meant that international law is a confederation, as it were, of two different bodies of law, really. It's not just a, a single unity. One is natural law, which is a sort of consistent set of principles and rules. But apart from natural law, there is something called the law of nations. And that's why a common expression for international law for many years was the law of nature and nations. <laughs> so it was a, uh, a, an alliance between these two bodies of law. The law of nature was made by as the name implies, nature itself. It arises out of the nature of things, rather like laws of nature in science, uh, things that do not depend on human volition. We must do our best to understand them, of course, but we don't make them any more than we make the law of gravity or thermodynamics or, or whatever. These are permanent, immutable, eternal principles that are beyond uh, alteration by humans. The law of nations, on the other hand, is the man-made portion of international law. Uh, that is what states are free to make and unmake by way of treaties, customary practices, and so forth. And that international law is a confederation of those two bodies of law, uh, the one sort of eternal and transcendental, as it were, and the other one more down-to-earth and man-made. And the uh, alliance between the two is sometimes a rather uneasy one, it must be admitted. If we think today about uh, the various uh, kind of fragmented fields of uh, discipline, trade, international criminal law, uh, human rights, environment, uh, that is, I mean, there's uh, several different uh, areas that seem to be somewhat disconnected from each other today. Are there any particular areas that are more associated with natural law or more associated with uh, kind of the law of nations in terms of the history, or is it that, that do they flow in both directions? I would say that the areas which are most associated with, with natural law, the, the single one that, that's most associated is human rights. Uh, I would say this idea that there are intrinsic pre-existing rights, which States do not create, but they are bound to protect. And by extension, international criminal law is a, is a close ally of that. Things that are further removed from that would be environmental law, for example, and trade and investment law and uh, things in those areas would be much more on the side of, of the law of nations than of nature. But there was uh, this kind of idea, I think uh, you discuss in several parts of the book, of, of the kind of uh, sociability of human beings leading to uh, freedom of commerce. Uh, and so it seems that trade was also, at least historically, connected with uh, some ideas about uh, human nature and natural law. Yes, that's right. And the principles of human sociability and human economic intercourse were uh, part of, of the law of nature 
for a long time. And yet that came to be rather buried in the 19th century by the positivists with their stress on, on state sovereignty. And so that uh, was kind of pushed, swept under the carpet uh, a bit, as it were, and revived mostly in the forms of treaties, such as the World Trade Organization is the present form that we have it in. But yes, yeah, there too, the the roots of the thinking very clearly go back to natural law far back into the Middle Ages. Right. I mean, when reading someone about someone like Pufendorf, who you write about, I did think a little bit about uh, the way in which trade is some, somehow today thought of as... Uh, I guess, uh, expressing deep human values in terms of, uh, these ideas of sociability, interconnectedness, and, uh, you know, this idea that deregulation and, and by losing law, we, we promote trade. I thought, I thought that kind of resonated with that as well as, uh, with other periods such as, uh, what you write about the physiocrats, for example. Uh, yes, that that's right. And to, to a great extent, uh, international trade rights and, and freedom of trade has come to be seen as a kind of human right. Yes. And this is one of the things that the WTO is, is protecting. But it's a human right of a particularly individualistic and, and libertarian kind. And therefore, it's the, one of the great products of liberalism, which is one of the great strains of, of thought in, in international law. And so the t- those two areas of human rights and freedom of trade are the two great gifts of liberalism to international law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and when did uh, human rights actually begin? If we think, uh, focus on this particular area for, for a moment. I mean, this was a matter of a lot of debate recently, and uh, I'm, I'm wondering about your position. Uh, It's a difficult question, again, because there are definitional problems here. If you talk about human rights in terms of constraints on what states are allowed to do, then you can take it far back into the Middle Ages because there were held to be constraints on the way states were allowed to treat persons and the extent to which they could intrude arbitrarily into people's lives. But uh, this was a question of constraints on states, and one may quibble as to whether that's what one means by human rights as such. Uh, what, it's not until the 17th century, basically, that one thinks of human rights as being inherent in individuals uh, without regard to states. And that idea first comes through with Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century and comes to be developed and starts to be a major threat in international law only in the 19th century and really only matures in the 20th century and really only since World War II. So in in anything like a mature form, it's quite recent. But it it does go back, uh, ideas, uh, the libertarian ideas of it go back to the 17th century. It's kind of surprising to hear about Hobbes. What is the role of uh, Hobbes in the story of international human rights? Well, Hobbes was important in the development of natural law in that he was the first to base natural law strongly on rights instead of duties. Prior to Hobbes, international uh, natural law had been thought overwhelmingly to be a law of duties. But with Hobbes, it was a law of rights and of one right in particular the right to self-preservation and security in a chaotic and threatening world. And uh, that that right was the supreme one upon which he built his whole system. 
But it's interesting that he, what the system he built on it was an authoritarian one, <laughs> rather strangely. But it was, uh, it was built on a basis of human rights in a, in a state of nature and the one supreme human right in particular. Sometimes, um, the, the history of, uh, one of the major debates actually in the history of international law, of course, is the idea that international law is European law and it, that it's very Eurocentric. And the book, makes a few significant attempts to widen the story outside of Europe uh, to China as well as other places. Uh, could you say a little bit about the question whether international law is indeed European law writ large? That is a very good question, and modern international law as we have it is very definitely the European experience writ large. I know some people will not be very happy to hear this, And since the decolonization movement, there has, of course, been massive participation by non-Western states in, in international law. Uh, but the contours of the system had been formed long before the decolonization era. And so the new states have kind of slotted into this system that the Europeans made. The Europeans were not the first to think about uh, these issues, as I'm careful to point out. Uh, there was practice uh, in Mesopotamia, China, India, and uh, the ancient Greece be beforehand. Uh, but it was the Europeans who thought systematically about it and who developed a, a long tradition of it, primarily through natural law doctrine, which has no real comparison in any other civilization. So is there any, if, if someone today might think, uh, you know, this is actually wrong, that uh, international law is European law. Are, what are the sources that one can reach to historically in, to, in order to try to expand the tradition? What are the, the major sources in your mind? The major sources in my mind, I think, would be the practice of the ma major Asian states and empires in, say, the early modern period of the Ottoman Empire and Mughal India and to some extent the Chinese empire as well. Now, the, the difficulty there is I wonder whether there is, uh, whether there are great troves of uh, information yet to be discovered. And it may be that the histories will have to be massively rewritten at some point. But I'm a little doubtful about that. I think that if there were great treasures to be discovered, someone would have brought them to our attention so far. And I think that when we look at the great Asian states in those periods, we have a wealth of practice. But we have very little in the way of anything like a consistent doctrine, which is what the Europeans produced. How, how was it possible for you to access these sources in terms of uh, language, in terms of archives? Where, where did you look for them? And I uh, did a, a lot of looking through just libraries that kept old treatises, and I fortunately had assistance from persons whose knowledge of German is greater than mine, and I read French, and I had assistance with Latin as well. So, But I, I do not read Chinese or Arabic. So for these, I, I was uh, reliant on, on what has come into the European languages from those. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, many parts of the book, and it seemed to me that in many parts of the book, you're, you have uh, quite explicit lines saying, uh, this particular moment was a precedent for how we understand international law today. It almost seems like 
the history is uh, looking back at history. Uh, one of the major object, one of the main objectives of the book is to find precedents for what we what we can recognize today. Do you think that is uh, indeed one of the things that you were looking for? Uh, not particularly. I think those were the sorts of things I would point out in passing, because it's often that if you go back to the very earliest instance of something, it will be in a different context, or it will be something which was then forgotten about for a long time. So I'm not quite sure which points you have in mind. But in general, I wasn't too concerned about that. My concern mainly was to tell as smooth and and coherent a story and, and a narrative as possible. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you would like to uh, discuss any of the particular figures that you uh, talk about in the book, Grotius, Vettel, Victoria, uh, or, or someone else. Uh, who's your favorite uh, person in this history? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I don't know as I have a single favorite. Vatel is very close to being a favorite of mine. Uh, because of the extraordinary charm of his style. And he is the first one to bring international law to a a mass audience. He wrote in the vernacular, for one thing, which nobody had ever done before in this this particular area. So, uh, uh, and also he's been kind of underestimated by international lawyers in past generations, although that's now being corrected. And I'm Happy to be a small part of the correction effort. So Vatel is a favorite of mine. Uh, another favorite of mine was the German Eric Kaufmann because of the extraordinary changes that his thought went through over many years. And he was one of only two people who was active both prior to the First World War and the interwar period and after World War II. And so uh, he, he was somebody of, of some interest to me. And people who, uh, Kelsen is another one, uh, uh, Hans Kelsen, who uh, also went through uh, a number, had some rather uh, exciting adventures in his life. And it's people, uh, uh, people who had a bit uh, of an adventure in their lives are the ones that, uh, that I rather like the best, who are not simply the scholarly types. Grotius, of course, had misadventures in his life and, and lived as an exile for much of his time. And uh, Oppenheim was of some interest uh, to me, too. But I, I have to say I don't really have a particular favorite. What are the um, some of the adventures that Kelsen uh, had in his life? Well, he was a member of the Constitutional Court in Austria and handed was... Uh, the court handed handed down a highly controversial decision. This was nothing to do with international law, but in the family law area about uh, uh, whether, I think, divorced people could be remarried in churches. And there was an extraordinary uproar about it, and uh, riots, and the Palace of Justice was burned down uh, in the riots, and the legislature hastily acted to basically sack the Supreme Court, of which Kelsen was was a member, and so this was a rather jarring experience as, as a judge. So he then went to Germany and was at the University of Hamburg, but he had the misfortune of being there when the Nazis came to power, and he was on the very first list of people sacked. Just about the first thing the Nazis did was to sack Jews from the civil services, and of which university teaching was one. So he was then on the run 
He had to gain uh, his first stop was Geneva, where he taught for a number of years, and then finally over to the United States. So uh, he's one who has uh, kept uh, uh, one jump ahead of things. Not not all of them did. Uh, Strupp, Carl Strupp, for example, uh, did not make it to the United States, though he had a job offer there. But uh, so some of these, uh, you do find people who had occasional adventures. And also one of the things I was concerned to do in the book generally was to give a sense of personalities behind these names that you just see on textbooks or library cards or or, or whatever on the library computers now. And to uh, give a, some feeling that this is a body of law made by real flesh and blood human beings who go through ups and downs in their lives and careers and, and that are, well, a bit like the rest of us rather than being <laughs> just vaguely godlike figures. Right, right, right. Uh, a lot of the people that you write about in the book uh, are both practitioners and scholars at the same time. And I feel, I, I think that to some extent that is something that uh, we still see today around us in international law. Can you say something about the relationship between scholarship and practice um, as it plays out in the enormous history of international law? Uh, yes. In recent centuries, the tie has been that many lawyers, international lawyers, of course, are involved in, not surprisingly, international litigation, whether as arbitrators or judges or as counseling cases, and that goes on constantly at the present time. And in previous centuries, uh, they have done diplomatic service uh, to a fair extent. Grotius was one of those, and Vatel as well. And so, uh, and in a way, things have been pretty constant along that line. Occasionally, the uh, international lawyers have gone into electoral politics with greater or lesser degrees of success. And so there's always been a, the feeling of public spiritedness about law. And also, uh, this reflects the fact that international law is made out there in the real world at first instance, and then afterwards it's left to the scholars to make sense out of it. <laughs> so that uh, international law is is uh, done in the making, more than other kinds of laws, which are done by promulgation by legislatures. Uh, international law is one which is more made out in the field. So international lawyers perhaps have a bit more of a sense than other lawyers that being out there in, in the real world is part of the job. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so uh, I take it uh, by now you are well, this project is well behind you and you may be working on something else. Would you like to share with the listeners uh, what is your next project about or what are some of you, the things that you're thinking about more recently? Uh, yes, my next project is one which has kind of grown out of this. I'm afraid it's not going to have quite as much public appeal, but it's going to be a general history of natural law thought. So it will be a history of philosophy and history of science to a large extent, because so much of natural law was about the natural world and how it works. So there will be much in there about our relationship between scientific thought and legal thought. And, but again, it will take the story from the beginning of civilization up to the present day. And uh, at the present day, it will involve looking at things like evolutionary psychology and sociobiology and complexity theory and 
and things of that kind. So it'll be a bit of a branching out from international law, but uh, much of the basis of it will come from this book. Very exciting. So it's a very interdisciplinary and, again, a very sweeping project. Yes, that's right. It will be sort of history of philosophy and history of science uh, in well, combination. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to that. Okay, we've taken uh, much of your time already, and I would like to thank you again for doing this and really, once again, recommend uh, listeners uh, that uh, and say that this book is, is really a riveting read. And as you also highlighted during this interview, it, uh, it's very accessible, and the people that appear in it are very much are very vivid and very, very lively stories altogether. So thanks. Thank you very much, Professor Neff. Well, thank you for having me. Okay. It's been a pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. 